is A to Z with Mark Zinno, part of Locked On Sports Atlanta, and it starts now. What's up, everybody? Uh, welcome into A to Z here on Locked On Atlanta. John Michaels in for Mark Zeno. Zeno's off on vacation today, so I figured I'd do a little fill-in work for him and keep you locked on everything that's going on in the ATL. Coming up right about now, we got a lot we're going to dive into over the course of the podcast. Georgia, schedule, the Florida game. What's going on with that? We'll dive into a bunch of that. The NBA Finals goes down last night. The former Atlanta Hawk has the game of his life. Hawks fans were out last night saying, where was that when Al Horford was here? We'll dive into that. The Braves picking up a nice win yesterday over Colorado. They look for something that they haven't had the entire season. We'll get into that as well. And the Falcons, a very interesting conversation that came up on PFF this week about Deion Jones, where he could end up. They sign another receiver, and we'll dive into some of the people that have to step up for this 2022 campaign to be a whole lot better coming up this year. But let's start with what's going on. SEC coaches meetings went down this week, and I know Z is not as big of a college football guy as I am, um, but some interesting stuff coming out. Obviously, the Jimbo Fisher and the Nick Saban side of the equation aside, the new thing that's coming up with the SEC is 2025 is going to be here before we know it, and Texas and Oklahoma are going to be part of the mix when it comes to the conference, and now you try to figure out what that scheduling model is really going to look like. There's been talk of a one permanent crossover game and then having eight potential non-permanent games, or they could have three permanent games at six rotating schedule, or it could stay at the eight-game model where it's going to be one and seven, and you try to figure out how you're going to come up with who the guys are going to be. But for the University of Georgia, it was interesting, as a lot of people are trying to figure out if we go to the three-man schedule, what's going to happen with Georgia's permanent crossover games? And I thought about this. To me, there's three teams that you absolutely must have. It's Tennessee, it's the University of Florida, um, and obviously Auburn, the Deep South's oldest rivalry. I saw some models where Tennessee was not part of that equation, and South Carolina would then be the group that ends up being in there as the permanent crossover game for Georgia. And it got me to thinking about a couple of things when it comes to the University of Georgia, the schedule, the way that they go about their business. I, one particular uh, individual, do not like it. I hate the Jacksonville game. And let me preface this by saying I have yet to ever be to the cocktail party. I've never had a chance during college football season to go down there. So I know there are a lot of people that look at this and go, you know, if you haven't been there, you don't understand the pomp and circumstance of the Jacksonville game. And I get it. And the Jacksonville game creates about $30 million in revenue for the, for the city of Jacksonville. And it kind of helps out when it's the University of Florida and Georgia. A lot of people set up their fall vacation around this. They'll go down on a Thursday. They go down and golf on Friday, hang out all day Saturday, go to the football game. A lot of times stay Sunday, go to the beach, maybe even get down there on a Wednesday with people that are having RVs and vacation homes and everything else. So I understand the economic impact for the city of Jacksonville. Kirby Smart was asked this week about it, and he said, you know, basically he feels like he loses a recruiting weekend when it comes to not having a home-and-home -home series with the University of Florida. Scott Strickland, the athletic director of the University of Florida, said, point blank, he wants to keep the game in Jacksonville. He thinks keeping the game in Jacksonville is perfect the way that it is, and you end up having, you know, basically a neutral site game, and these schools understand, 
But if from a revenue standpoint, whether it's either Georgia or Florida, understand you're losing a home game against your biggest rival. And think about how big that is if you lose a home game against your biggest rival at Georgia, not being able to get 93,000 people involved and going to that game every other year. You also have kids that never get a chance to experience the swamp and vice versa for Florida kids. They never have a chance to experience what it's like for the University of Georgia to play up there in Athens. The model that I would like personally would be the one, one and one home game in Athens, home game in Gainesville, neutral site game in Jacksonville. Now, I know the city of Jacksonville wants no parts of this because, again, they're going to lose $30 million in revenue on an annual basis with that game going down there. I know there are fans that like the pomp and circumstance of having the world's largest outdoor cocktail party in Jacksonville, and you don't want to lose that. But if I'm a season ticket holder, and I'm a season ticket holder in the uh, University of Georgia this year, your two biggest games are neutral site games. You play Oregon at Mercedes-Benz Stadium. You play Florida in Jacksonville. If I have to pony up 10, 20, 30, $40,000, whatever it may be, to be a season ticket holder at the University of Georgia, and I don't get to see the two best games at home, what do I want to have home games for? And I don't have their schedule sitting right in front of me. But the two biggest home games are October against Auburn and November against Tennessee. And then obviously with Georgia Tech being down the way that they are, the end of the year game doesn't seem to have as much cachet as it once did. So if I'm Georgia, I want to add a home game. I also think if you go to the model that the SEC is looking at and you go three permanent crossover games and then you're going to have six rotating games, you have to make that Florida game a home and home because if one of your permanent games is now potentially a Jacksonville game like it has been, you're going to lose another home game. And if they go away from divisions, understand that the SEC East no longer is going to exist and you're going to want to be one and two. Let's be real. Alabama and Georgia are probably going to be on a collision course for one and two for a long time. But when you add a Texas, you add an Oklahoma, we all assume LSU with Brian Kelly is going to be better. We think that what's going on with Josh Heupel in Tennessee, they're going to be better. Billy Napier at Florida will probably have them better. Mark Stoops at Kentucky's playing well. Shane Beamer's got South Carolina pointed in the right trajectory. You're going to want as many home games as you can possibly get. I think the SEC needs to lead the way and do the nine-game conference schedule. I know Big 12 already has that. I believe the Pac-12 already has that. The Big 10 already has that. I don't like seeing right now the SEC playing slappies. I mean, let's be real. What does Georgia get playing last year UAB or Middle Tennessee State? I think this year they have Charleston Southern on the schedule. That's great when it comes to paying these smaller schools, but I think what we want to see is great football. Great football is SEC teams playing other SEC teams. It's Georgia playing Oregon. I get the kickoff classic aspect. I love the folks at Chick-fil-A. They do a great job putting those games on at the beginning of the year. Georgia doesn't need that showcase anymore. You're a national title program. Do a couple of things. Take my advice. Do the one, one, and one. Home in Georgia, home at Florida, game in Jacksonville, and SEC, take my advice as well. Let's do the three, uh, three permanent crossover and then do the six rotating, get a nine-game conference schedule, and get the games that season ticket holders want and get the games that fans really want. When we get back, the Hawks had a player that used to be a Hawk member have a huge night last night, and what's to come for the Braves as they look for their first three-game winning spree. John Michael's in for Mark Zeno on A to Z here on Locked On Atlanta. 
And we're back here on A to Z with Mark Zeno, John Michaels in for Z today here on Locked on Atlanta. Having a great time talking about everything that's going on. Interesting conversation. We can continue about the University of Georgia and the SEC schedules and everything else. But last night we had the NBA Finals game number one, Boston and Golden State. And Boston able to come up with a huge victory over Golden State yesterday, led by Al Horford. It's hilarious to see Al Horford go for the game that he had last night. 26 points, 6 rebounds, 9 for 12 from downtown, had an unbelievable game shooting the basketball, and Boston has a huge comeback and an upset over Golden State in game number one. Interesting because Steve Kerr was 19-1 and in game number ones with the Golden State Warriors as their head coach. The only time they've lost game one at home, excuse me, 19-1 and at home, in game number one. The only time they lost the game one was 2016 to Oklahoma City. Remember, that was the Kevin Durant-Russell Westbrook team that was up 3-1 on the Warriors. Warriors would able would be able to come back, win the NBA championship, and then Kevin Durant would leave. People asked yesterday, where was this Al Horford when he played for the Atlanta Hawks? First and foremost, Al Horford has had a little bit of a renaissance in these playoffs, but I want to give you a couple of numbers going back towards the end of the season. Here's what he's done in the playoffs so far this year. He's averaged 10 points. He's averaged 7.7 rebounds, shooting 46% from the field. Really good. He's had games where he's had two, six, zero, five, three, five. But he's had a 20-point game against Miami. He had a huge 30-point game against Milwaukee in last night's 26-point game for the Golden State Warriors. So if you look at it in its totality, the 10 points a game for Al Horford were a lot, uh, even less than what you gave when he was an Atlanta Hawk, because I'm looking back in his Hawks career average, 15.2, 15.2, 18.6, 17.4, 12.4, 15.3, 14 and a half, whatever. Al Horford for his career has been about a 15 and seven guy. Really good player. To me, never a max player, which is why the Hawks did exactly what they needed to do years ago and let him sign five years and $150 million or whatever it was, seven years and $150 million with the Boston Celtics. We knew back in 2015, used to work at an old radio station that was the home of the Hawks. I had big arguments with people that you can't win an NBA title with Al Horford and Paul Millsap and Damari Carroll and Kyle Korver, um, you know, and Jeff Teague. Good team, great regular season team, made it to the Eastern Conference Finals. But what wins in the NBA is star players, or at least in 2015, you had to have a LeBron James to go win an NBA title. We've seen a little bit of shift in that, but Al Horford's able now to be the fourth option, to be the fifth option on a basketball team and get wide open threes. Because what you saw with Golden State last night, get the ball out of Jason Tatum's hand however you can do it. Jalen Brown was really bad in the first half. He was great in the second half. But you try to eliminate those guys first and foremost. And if you eliminate those guys first and foremost, then you allow Peyton Pritchard. You allow Marcus Smart. You allow Al Horford. Let those guys shoot jump shots. And in a make or miss league, Derek White last night goes bananas again. In a make or miss league, you live with that. But let's not get caught up in the moment, Hawks fans, where it's, oh, my goodness, Where's this Al Horford? Where was he in Atlanta? He had those moments in Atlanta. But on average, he was a 15-7 and guy. In the playoffs right now, he's a 10-7 and guy who's really had three good games throughout a 14- or 20-game schedule, however many games Boston has played, probably more than 20. You had four against Brooklyn. You had seven against uh, Milwaukee, seven against Miami. So I said 18. So 19 games. I was pretty close. 19 games. He's really had three good games. 
So, Hawk fans, don't get up in arms that Al Horford had a great game. By the way, his first game in the NBA Finals ever. Can be congratulatory for him. Just say, look, we are very happy that Al Horford has been able to go out and play some really good basketball. Now, I hate it that he's doing it with the Boston Celtics. I don't think anybody here in Atlanta or really outside of the city of Boston wants the Celtics to win. Second part to this with the NBA real quick. Can we stop the early narratives about putting people in the GOAT discussion? Steph Curry is one of the top 15 players in the history of the NBA. Simple and plain. One of the top 15 players ever. But I saw the people on the four-letter network come out this week and go, well, if Steph Curry wins the game this or wins the series, is he better than LeBron? Can we stop that? LeBron's going to go down as the all-time leading scorer in NBA history. We've had argument for, I don't know, a decade now, is LeBron better than MJ? And I get it. Steph Curry is a transformative player. He's a fantastic basketball player. He changed the way the NBA is played by being able to have the propensity to hit the three-point shots that he's been able to hit. That's great. Let's not put him in the LeBron category. Being top 15 in the history of the game, maybe even top 10. You could argue Steph Curry might be a top 10 player all time. It's not a bad thing, but he's not LeBron James. So let's stop with that early and quick narrative the way that it's gone down. We don't need to have that. Second thing, and ESPN's been really big for doing this for years. I remember 2005, USC's going for back-to-back titles in college football. And ESPN comes out with the narrative, if they beat Texas, they're the greatest dynasty ever. Or is this the greatest team in the history of college football? The problem is they had to win that last game. Let's not push the Golden State Warriors. And I get it. Six out of eight finals appearances, unbelievable. If Draymond Green doesn't punch a Cleveland player in the nuts, uh, they probably have an extra NBA championship. If Kevin Durant doesn't tear his Achilles and Klay Thompson tear up his knee, they probably beat the Toronto Raptors and have another NBA championship. Those things happen. It's part of what happens in basketball. Stop pushing the narrative. And let's for once, as the city of Atlanta, let's not try to live in a glass chamber where we look and we go, you know what, Al Horford did his thing. Why didn't this happen with the Atlanta Hawks? What we should be looking at when it comes to the Atlanta Hawks is how do you compete with Milwaukee? How do you compete with Boston? How do you compete with Miami? How do you compete with Philadelphia? How do you possibly compete with a healthy Brooklyn? How are you better than the Chicago Bulls? Those are questions Travis Schlink's got to answer when it gets to this offseason. Truthfully, they have to be players. I've seen multiple articles come out over the last couple of weeks. Who's touchable or untouchable with the Atlanta Hawks? One. There's one player who's untouchable. His name's Trey Young. Let's not kid ourselves. I like DeAndre Hunter as a player. Injured a lot. Um, outside of a 31-point game in the closeout game against Miami in the opening round of the playoffs, he's an inconsistent – he's not a true number two. He's an inconsistent offensive player. Can he be a number two? Absolutely. Is he right now? No. You just went to the Eastern Conference Finals a year ago with a banged-up DeAndre Hunter for most of the year. I'm sorry, Kevin Herter, movable. Danilo Gallinari, tradable. John Collins, tradable. Clint Capella, bye-bye. You know, these guys are all movable if the right piece comes along. If I'm the Atlanta Hawks, and I'm not, if I'm Travis Schlenk and I'm not, I'm going after a DeAndre Ayton. I'm going after a Donovan Mitchell. I'm swinging for the fences with Bradley Beal, and everybody is up for grabs. You turn Cam Reddish into a mediocre draft choice and Kevin Knox, who probably will not be on the team. 
why would I hold on to assets for a team that was in the play-in round and ended up basically being a group that got blown out in the first round? They're a Trey Young floater in a great fourth quarter from being swept in the first round of the playoffs as an eight seed. Everybody on this basketball team not named Trey Young is expendable. When we get back, this guy might be the shot in the arm the Atlanta Braves need, and this guy might be on the move when it comes to the Atlanta Falcons. John Michaels in for Mark Zeno here on A to Z on Locked on Sports. And welcome back to A to Z with Mark Zeno, John Michaels in, filling in for Z today, having a great time doing the podcast. One, a couple of things to get to before we get out of here today. Talk some Falcons, an interesting article with pro football focus of what could be coming with Deion Jones and a shot in the arm that the Braves, let's be honest, they really need. We'll start with the Braves, though, because something came up earlier this week, and we were talking about this a lot on 680 The Fan, was pretty simple that the Braves have yet to have a three-game winning streak. Here we are looking, and I'm looking at my watch right now. It's June the 3rd, and the defending World Series champions have yet to have a three-game winning streak, which they can get tonight as they take on the Colorado Rockies and Max Freed getting the ball for the first time uh, in Colorado. Could be great. Maybe it starts a five or a six or an eight-game trend. But the thing that I'm getting frustrated with right now is I keep hearing, well, they did this last year. Last year in August, we were playing the ping pong, right? What was it? 17 straight games. We had win-loss, 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 which was a dubious major league record. Now, it ended up working out well because you won the World Series and you're the champions and you got the big, beautiful rings, which, by the way, I've got one of those bad boys sitting right here. Big, beautiful replica ring uh, right here on the man cave. Love that. Appreciate the Atlanta Braves for that love. But what you did last year has zero bearing on this year. What you did last year, if you really looked into the history of baseball, you don't have repeat champions right now in baseball. Hadn't happened in 20-some-odd years in college football. It's in the NBA where there's dynasties. This definitely isn't the NFL where you had the Patriots winning back-to-back Super Bowls a couple of different times. Baseball is hard to repeat. I think the Yankees were the last ones to do so. So the Braves can't rest on the fact that, hey, last year, we did some good things and that we were able to overcome. The Mets are a better baseball team and the Braves really need to start taking care of bad baseball teams and a three game winning streak can do so. Braves also could be getting a shot in the arm coming up in July. Now, I know a lot of people have already started talking about trading deadline and it's two months away. What does Alex Anthopoulos do in two months? I'm going to warn people and caution you that what happened last year, again, was an anomaly. Going to pick up an Eddie Rosario where he gets red hot doesn't really happen. Remember, you trade for him and he's injured, and you had to kind of let him sit. Jock Peterson got hot. Jorge Soler came to Atlanta and starts hitting the cover off the baseball. Those were guys that were buy low, get great returns on your investment type players. I looked up uh, MLBTradeRumors.com today and started looking at some of the guys that are available. And I'm here to tell you, players that are available right now are guys that are struggling. Guys that are hitting, you know, 190. Corey Dickerson, they said he could be available. I think he's hitting 151. The chance that you're going to go find another one of those buy low, get a high return type guy is probably pretty low. You're not going to go out and trade a mid-level or low-level prospect and think that you're going to get somebody that's going to do like Solaire did a year ago and win the World Series MVP or do like Eddie Rosario did and win the NLCS MVP where nobody could get those guys out. Or Jock Peterson, how many huge home runs with the Pearls on did he hit last year? So what the Braves have to hope for 
is that the shot in the arm, and they're going to make a trade. Let's keep it real. As the kids like to say, we'll keep it 100. They're going to make a trade. You need out, outfield help, at least till Eddie Rosario gets back. Marcelo Zuna cannot be in left field. Ronald Acuna right now has not been 100% night in and night out. So there's times right now that you've got a rookie and Michael Harris playing center field, and I like him. Adam Duvall, who's not hitting his weight right now. Marcelo Zuna, who's a butcher in left field. And Ronald Acuna, who's in and out of the lineup. You'll get Rosario back in about five or six weeks. But the shot in the arm could potentially be in pitching. Think about that for a second. Kyle Wright's been really good. Max Fried, really good. Charlie Morton, for the last month, has been really good. Ian Anderson is an up-and-down guy, but as your fourth starter, you really like that. And you potentially could be getting Mike Soroka back coming up right after the All-Star break. Now, hopefully you're still alive at the All-Star break. Uh, hopefully you're still within puncher's distance, whether it's the Mets or the wild card. But Soroka's been thrown off the mound. We were talking about it this morning on 680 The Fan that there's a good chance Mike Soroka is going to be heading to start making some rehab starts and ramp this thing up over a month. Now, I am a guy. I raise my hand right now. I am not an expert by any means, but I've had two torn Achilles. Those are year recoveries. And granted, I am not a major league athlete. I don't even try to be one. Uh, it's been a long time since I was able to compete at a higher level than I am right now as a 47-year-old. But I tore my first Achilles at 34, and it took every bit of a year. And that's talking about multiple days a week rehab. And a lot of times, it comes up right here. So imagine tearing the same tendon twice. And now all of a sudden, you got to go out there and forget about it and go make plays. Now, I hope Mike Soroka could come back. If he's even 80% of himself and you put him back as a fifth starter, you feel really good. And that could be the shot in the arm that this team needs. Other shot in the arm. And the Falcons are doing something tonight. They've got something in Mercedes-Benz Stadium. Five bucks, I believe, to get you in. Open to go watch OTAs. Mix and mingle and meet other Falcon fans and stuff like that. But something came out with Pro Football Focus earlier this week as we hit June 1 about the potential of June 1 cuts. And post-June 1 turns into salary cap savings. And the number one name that came up was Deion Jones. Now, I love Deion as a person. I like what he did in Atlanta early on in his career before the foot injuries started to, and some of the lower leg injuries started to sap him of the explosiveness that he had. Dion was really bad in coverage last year. I'm talking about over 800 yards while he was covering. I think he had a 34.6 rating when it came to PFF. And the first name they put out as potential June one cut is Dion Jones. And here's why I'm in favor of doing this now and not, trying to trade him at the deadline or anything else. The Falcons have already told you this year that they really don't care about the salary cap. You've got 15 million bucks tied up in Julio Jones in dead money. You've got like $60 million tied up in Matt Ryan and other guys total in totality. It's like $67 million in dead money. So they're basically going this year with one arm tied behind their back, trying to come up with a roster. It's hard to do so. So if you want to rip the Band-Aid off, which they've already done by trading Matt Ryan, trading Julio a year ago, cutting ties with guys like Dante Fowler, paying 60-plus million dollars for players that aren't going to be here, rip the Band-Aid all the way off. And the way to rip the Band-Aid all the way off is you cut Deion Jones. Now, it's going to murder your cap this year. You're going to add up maybe another $18 million, I think, in dead cap money would go on there this year if you decide to pull the scab off and you cut Deion Jones. But what realistically are you getting for him at this point? Six-round pick? 
maybe. Does anybody want to take on not only this year's salary, but he's going to count 18 million bucks in salary cap next year? Probably not. He's not the same Deion Jones from 16 and 17 and 18. Let's be honest. Who is the same that they were in 16, 17, or 18? I know I'm not. I know a lot of people out there aren't. So if I'm the Falcons, it's time to rip the scab off right now and go ahead and cut bait. Love Deion. He can still play in the NFL, but the money doesn't equal the value that you're getting in return. Think about it for a second. Is he a $20 million linebacker right now? The answer is no. Are the Falcons a playoff contender? Or let me ask this a better way. Are the Falcons three or four games better with Dion on the roster as opposed to off? The answer is no. Maybe he wins you one game. But where are the Falcons at this year? I love them. I hope they're a playoff team. But when I look up and down that roster, I don't see playoff football team when it comes to the Atlanta Falcons in 2022. What I look at going into next year is I don't want dead money. And if you keep Deion Jones around one more year and just say you cut him after this year, you're going to have $5 million plus in dead money next year. I don't want anything tied up any longer. Cut bait and let's move on. Appreciate Mark Zeno calling on me, calling the righty out of the bullpen. Calling me in to do some stuff here on A to Z. Hope you guys appreciate it. Make sure you download the podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast. All of that good stuff. Support my guy, Mark Zeno. He does a great job every time. Until next time, we'll see you.